The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is a real honor for me to welcome a fellow registered dietitian, Ms. Arti Batavia. She is a certified practitioner for functional medicine, and her area of expertise is in Alzheimer's disease. She is the chair of Indians in Nutrition and Dietetics. She is a spokesperson for the Michigan Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and she is the state coordinator for Vegetarian Nutrition, which is a practice group within the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. I happened to see a webinar that she gave about Alzheimer's disease, and it was connected to the work of Dr. Dale Bredesen. In fact, she's trained by Dr. Bredesen to practice the End of Alzheimer's first program to prevent and reverse cognitive decline called Recode. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome, RT. It's wonderful to have you with me. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the kind introduction, Melinda. Well, your work is really spectacular. It's so wonderful when we as dietitians can specialize in one area and I feel like I'm more of a generalist, and so I depend on people like you to keep me up to speed on these specialty areas. But let's start out. Just tell me, how did you become interested in nutrition? So the story begins in India. I Actually, when I had to choose my profession, and even before that, I had heard a PhD nutritionist speak on mitochondria and energy and food, and that is what got me excited into nutrition. And since then, I wanted to study nutrition, and here I am, uh, working through it 20 years, 25 years into it. It's so funny. I had a similar experience where I was in a college class. I really didn't know what I was going to major in, but it took that one class that just made me feel like, oh my gosh, look what food can do. So here we are, decades later, in our own areas of interest. How did you become interested in in Alzheimer's disease specifically, and how did you get connected with Dr. Bredesen? So I guess it was almost five, six years ago when I made my trip to India to visit my family, and it so happened that I saw even my brother-in-law's father, and he has Alzheimer's. And here is this wonderful man who can no longer remember his own son, and that was kind of an eye-opener for me in terms of knowing somebody with Alzheimer's closely. And then fast forward a couple of years later, we got our genetic testing done, my husband and I. And interesting enough, my husband did share, have two copies of APOE4. And so now we knew that, of course, he is at more risk for Alzheimer's, knowing that he has a family history of Alzheimer's. Um, His grandfather had Alzheimer's. And so I'm like, okay, let's be in that preventative mode and whatever I can search and dig deeper into knowing what we can do preventatively is where I will look into. So it so happened that the same year that we did our genetic testing for APOE, 
IFM had their grand rounds with Dr. Dale Bredesen, who has that whole programmatic approach on reversing cognitive decline. And so I jumped onto it. There was a beta group of practitioners wherein I, I did not know about it then, but the minute I know that he was coming up with his training program at the Buck Institute, yes, I went for the first training. Then, of course, there was so much to grasp that for me, being a dietitian and what I did, of course, functional medicine did help because quite many of the aspects of what Dr. Bredesen was dealing was all what was what we were taught in functional medicine. But he connected the dots when it came to cognitive decline and reversing symptoms of cognitive decline. And he has well-researched and he has published a lot of papers on Alzheimer's disease. So it just kind of went in a flow wherein I started going for his training programs and studying more, reading more, studying more, and just kind of getting myself deeper into looking at research papers on Alzheimer's and how can we work on nutrition aspects in Alzheimer's. And so then Dale also had his first immersion program where he had almost 25 participants for a three-day residential program. And I was so fortunate to be involved with him and seeing his patients and working through the nutrition aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Let's back up for one moment. How would you describe APOE? You mentioned that you found out about it through genetic testing. Is this a genetic marker? So, yeah, APOE is considered as an ancestral allele in our genus and is a major cholesterol carrier that supports lipid transports and injury repair to the brain. I see. And so when, and there are different isoforms of APOE4, as in, you can have APOE 2, 3, or 4, and they have distinct functions in the body, such as we're looking at brain lipid transportation or glucose metabolism, signaling of neurons uh, in the inflammatory process of uh, neurons and even in mitochondria function. I see. So if you have this particular marker... I guess you can have either one or two copies. And if you have one copy, it puts you at a certain level of risk. If you have two copies, you're at a higher risk. And it makes following a special diet all the more important. Would that be the right way to interpret that? Yes and no. So yes, if you have a single copy, uh, there is a tendency to the frequency would be around 47%, I guess. Okay. And if you're homozygous like my husband, there is a 91% chance of developing Alzheimer's. But then there's a 9% chance that you won't develop Alzheimer's. And I want to be optimistic for my husband. Because at no point do I want him to forget me or my name. And, you know, you want to live the best quality of life and health together as much as you can. So rather than going on you know, aspect of where you get the diagnosis and then start working on how can you then reverse it. The best way for us in this scenario is to work on the preventative aspects of Alzheimer's. Absolutely. And you know what I thought was so interesting from your webinar presentation was that Alzheimer's can actually begin 20 years 
prior to getting a diagnosis. So I think all of us listening should probably pay attention to this, not just people who have had that devastating diagnosis, but it's never too early to start on the preventive path. Yeah. So like Dr. Isaacson says, anybody who has a brain (laughs) should, you know, as in being a preventative mode is because we all have a susceptibility, even if you're not an ApoE44. There are different forms of Alzheimer's and subtypes of Alzheimer's that Dr. Bredesen talks about. Yes. And so me having the APOE33 puts me more susceptible to generally what he has seen even in his research is tendency towards uh, toxic types, you know. Right. And so, yeah, so anybody with a brain should be in a preventative mode. Right. I totally agree. And I thought it might be interesting for us to talk about not only the dietary components, but just to help people understand that from your webinar, certain medications can lead us to be at a higher risk for Alzheimer's disease. And these medications are things that so many people take today, like statin medications and proton pump inhibitors, some of the antihistamines and antibiotics, or people that just take multiple drugs, something they call polypharmacy. And I think of the population that we have, and so many of us are taking drugs. I don't know how many people realize that those drugs can put us at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, and one very striking thing that I mentioned, even when I was researching and then I mentioned at my webinar, was with regards to these PPIs. So what is the function of PPI? They would decrease stomach acid, but in general, we need stomach acid. And that is what helps us absorb B12. That is what helps us absorb and digest our proteins and kill microorganisms. And so prolonged use of PPIs is going to increase the A-beta production, and then it won't make it dissolve. And so there will be more of these productions happening and the amyloid plaques that you would see. So, you know, one thing is to, that is one of the history-taking questions that I would ask for how long have you been on PPIs? Mm -hmm. I agree. And we should let our listeners know too that the way Dr. Bredesen presents the information for his RECODE protocol is that he believes that Alzheimer's is a response to the toxins in our environment and inflammatory situations that we get ourselves into, maybe by poor diet or not enough sleep or just not eating well. So I think that it's a different way of looking at Alzheimer's disease, isn't it? True. Absolutely. And then once you have categorized, it's so very easy to focus on how can we work towards it. So for example, in the record report, you're looking at inflammatory markers, your CRP levels, you're looking at whether you have, how are your glucose and insulin numbers, or how is your B12. And going back to the PPIs, again, PPIs, you need stomach acid for the intrinsic factor so that it can absorb B12 and iron. And unfortunately, if you've been on PPIs for a long period of time, you have poor absorption of B12 and iron. So that puts you at risk for more nutritional deficiencies that will again affect cognition. Right. And just for our listeners, PPI stands for proton pump inhibitors. And it seems like everybody and their brother is on them because of acid reflux. 
Yes. Yeah. And I think you bring up a good point with regard to what are nutritional deficiencies that can lead us down a path towards dementia, like B12 deficiency, or not getting enough of other nutrients in the diet, maybe having an imbalance of fatty acids, for example. I was curious that, at least the way I understood it, Alzheimer's disease is the number one form of dementia that Americans are facing. But there's also vascular dementia. So any kind of diet approach that would be helpful for our cardiovascular system would also be helping us prevent Alzheimer's disease. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So in general, you know, I've also heard same people saying what is good for the heart is good for the brain. Yeah. And so it may be exercise, may be nutritional lifestyle changes, stress reduction, and so on. So yes. Right. Well, let's jump to the diet section that you recommend, because I think there are some factors that maybe we're not focusing on enough. One of which is this idea of having a prolonged period of not eating. And from what I've learned from other dietitians is that our gut microbes, of course, are so important we have this gut-brain axis, and so we want to make sure that our gut microbes are healthy to support a healthy brain. And this whole idea is relatively new of not eating at night, of having this prolonged period. So what do you tell your patients about that? So similar to what Dr. Bredesen mentions of having ketoflex diet, or I start with not everybody is on board with ketogenic diet at first you know, we also have to have negotiations with our patient as to how much are they ready to let go of their carbohydrate. So it begins with where the patient is, and then accordingly we make changes. So one of the first changes would be to cut down simple carbs. The second change would be, again, your sugars. And then the second change would be to increase more amount of fat. But again, I make sure to heal the gut first. And we use what we call in functional medicine as a 5R program to look into optimizing gut function first and then recommending something like 12 hour, 12 to 14-hour fasting, wherein it's like you divide the day into half. So 12 hours, you want rest and you want the gut to rest, and the other 12 hours that you could have meals, but then you don't want to have meals quite often. So two to three meals daily is what we would recommend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's fascinating because so much of our society is based on eating around the clock, it seems. So there's nighttime events where we go out, we eat, we drink. But really, for the most part, we should be having this nighttime fasting. You mentioned carbohydrates and fats, and we should talk about that because there are some fats that are healthier for our brains and our guts than others. And I know that in speaking with people who focus on a healthy microbiome, they recommend, of course, a high-fiber diet. And they also recommend lower fat in terms of not having a lot of fat from things like meat and butter and cheese. And that is, again, in accordance with protecting the heart, as well as the recommendations in the MIND diet, which I've also been looking at. So what would you say about carbohydrates and fats? Is there a total amount of carbohydrate or fat that you would recommend? So there is a conflicting research here, but in terms of Dr. Longo's research, where he 
proposes almost 60% of the calories coming from carbohydrates versus when we look at the keto flex diet, you want to be in a position where you are able to adapt between having normal amount of carbs or around 30 to 40% carbs to versus going into a ketogenic kind of diet where you are. You see that the patient has got into a nutritional ketosis wherein you have your beta-hydroxybutyrate from 0.8 to 1.5, where you know that that would give optimal nourishment in the form of ketones to the brain. I see. So that is what he suggests. And the other thing would be to make sure that you don't eat three hours before bedtime. Right. Let me take one break, RD, because we are beyond midpoint, and I just need to let our listeners know if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Arti Batavia. She is a fellow registered dietitian. She's a certified practitioner in functional medicine, and her specialty is with Dr. Bredesen looking at how to treat and prevent Alzheimer's disease by tweaking the diet and tweaking the lifestyle that we have that might contribute to decline. Let's go back because I think that when a lot of people hear a keto diet, they think they're going to eat a lot of meat and they're not going to have any carbohydrates. And that's not what we're talking about at all, is it? No. In fact, Dr. Bredesen mentions meat as a condiment. It's a very highly plant-based diet and you want to get more amount of your antioxidants and nutrients from plant-based, and you could have very small amount of beans too, but quite many of the calories are coming from nuts and seeds and vegetables and fats and a small quantity of meat. Because if there is excess amount of proteins, that again will not let you get into ketosis. Mm -hmm. What about artificial sweeteners and sugar consumption? We are so programmed to like sweets. They're at every turn. I know that there's been a lot of research looking at the microbiome, and both sugar and artificial sweeteners are detrimental to microbes. What do you tell patients about that? So number one is the adaptation, right? I don't recommend any artificial sweeteners to my patients is because here we are talking about a terminal case like Alzheimer's disease wherein we are trying not just to stall the progression, but also reverse. So having cultivated these habits and sugar cravings for a long period of time is one of the predisposing factors that have got us in the, in the place that we would be in with cognitive decline. So even with artificial sweeteners, they could be anywhere from 100 to 300 times sweeter than sugar. Mm-hmm. And so the goal is to not have or decrease that palate or the craving for sugar and rather target and aim for natural foods and work through those rather than artificial sweeteners. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a place for artificial sweeteners when I'm consulting my patients. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, for so many reasons. And like how you mentioned, Melinda, yes, it also impacts gut microbiome. And in fact, I've been looking at studies wherein even soluble fibers such as pectin that is found in apples and apricots, carrots, cherries, or say mango pulp or oranges, they have soluble pectins that help with uh, enhancing the gut microbiome 
and thereby signaling and decreasing inflammation. Mm-hmm. This is really the new frontier, isn't it? Absolutely, and it's it's exciting. It's exciting to be looking at studies and seeing what have been published in uh, 2019 rather than just going back. Yes, history has a very important role to play in it, as in, of course, with look at uh, ketogenic diets, but there's so much more research that, you know, you can get yourself digging deeper into. And my goal is to look into those studies where, which I can then apply it on my patients. So in terms of what could the positive outcomes be if I changed or tweaked their nutrition plan. Right. We should talk about fats too, because that's such an area of confusion. We hear that we should restrict fats, and then we sort of went on this low-fat rampage where everything was higher in, in simple sugars, and that didn't do our hearts very good. So what do you tell people when it comes to the best kinds of fat to eat? The best kind of fats would be you are having your PUFAs and fats that with, which you would find in nuts and seeds and in avocados, your heart-healthy fats, rather than looking in for saturated fats. So we're looking more into focusing on nuts and seeds and good quality fats and oils um, rather than saturated fats and meats. It's a good heart-healthy diet. As you said earlier, what's good for the heart is good for the brain. Yes. And, you know, most of the studies that were done for all these while, they looked into saturated fats, looking at dairy products and using high amount of cream and butter and cheese. But there's this one study which just came out in April, and it came from, I don't remember the source, but the name of the study is an experimental ketogenic diet for Alzheimer's disease, which was nutritionally dense and rich in vegetables and avocados. Oh, interesting. It's a very interesting study wherein the patients that were consuming a lot of potatoes and starchy foods and whole grains they started consuming much more amount of uh, vegetables in their diet, higher quantities of good quality oils, nuts, and seeds. So that was kind of interesting to see how that shift in healthy fats could take place. Right. Once the patient is educated. Right, exactly. What do you find is the hardest thing for your patients to adhere to? Hmm, good question. So it depends where the patient is. Sure. I have some patients who have read the book, who are on board and have already started making those changes, and they come to me for tweaking and fine-tuning. Right. Those would be, I wouldn't say the easiest, but those are more fun to work with is because they have already read the book or already know the basis of what we would be working through. What I see with the elderly folks is difficulty in changing both lifestyle and eating habits is because for almost 60, 70 years, they have been used to one way of eating. And suddenly now, there's somebody who is telling you to back off sugar, to back off your sugar in your oatmeal, or stop having cookies and muffins. So... Yes, there are some patients who we would literally have to negotiate. I remember this case. He was previously work, working in NASA and in very intelligent, brilliant man now succumbed to Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. wherein we literally initially started 
negotiating on to use brown sugar in oats maybe once in a month or so. And then slowly, of course, he gave up and he was doing well. And then effectively, he, he went into ketosis. But initially, the struggle is the food part, mm-hmm. giving up your easy, simple carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. And once they get and once they start seeing results, then it's a whole different ball game. They are excited. They start focusing on food, not just food, but then getting into a healthy lifestyle of exercising, walking, doing their brain training, maybe some amount of breathing exercises like, you know, yoga or meditation. And it's kind of interesting where that turn takes. So, yes. Yeah. At times, the most of the times, it would be the food where I feel that majority of the patients need to make changes. And that is a little difficult at first. But once they understand and once they are in the flow and once they look at their glucose numbers going down and seeing changes in it could be subjective changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, I have a patient from Ohio wherein initially she would not take much interest into what she was wearing, but then she wanted to wear her lipstick, have her accessories, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Interesting. When I was reading through Dr. Bredesen's book, I realized, oh my gosh, there are so many blood tests to take. You want to know where you stand with some of these basic markers like insulin and and your hormone status, thyroid status. And I thought to myself, gosh, when I go to the doctor, I would have to be the one to bring this up. And so I think that one of the most important things about taking a look at this protocol is just knowing what kind of changes we can expect as we age and staying on top of them and simply being aware so that when we go to see our physician, we can say, I think it's important for me to know what my thyroid status is. I'd like to know what my insulin levels are. Do I have any resistance? Because then we have more of a motivation, I think, in moving forward and tweaking our diet. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I have had patients who would come with a photocopy of the cognoscopy, wherein in the book, End of Alzheimer's, they, Dr. Bredesen has this lab markers, biomarkers that he would like to look at. And they would say, would you do that for me? So it's kind of they are ready and they want to know where their, what their insulin levels are, what their hormone levels are, what their nutritional status is, and how can they optimize. So patients come highly motivated. And that is the most exciting part, to even know that they have the skin in the game and they want to get these markers tested. And of course, majority of the times what I have noticed is the physicians are on board, even if, you know, some of the physicians would not believe that you can probably reverse the symptoms of cognitive decline, but quite many of them are on board and willing to help the patient. I have one last question because we are at the end of our time. What do you want to leave our listeners with? Very interesting. So I would like to leave your listeners with one simple message. Prevention is the key. Mm -hmm. Having balance with eating, exercise, lifestyle, learning a new game or a new sport or a new language or working on mental activities and being social is very critical to brain health. Mm Mm-hmm. 
That's great advice. And I want to thank you so much for being such a wonderful resource within our community of dietitians and for being my guest today. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my producer, Dan Hemmelgarn, and the recording studios at KOPN in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Arti Batavia, and I will provide a link to your website. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. Thank you.